millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Boris Johnson hangs by a thread. The British Prime Minister has suffered two high-profile resignations within minutes of each other. Also tonight, the 9.5 billion euro Metrolink, decades in the making, finally gets the government green light. The government is committed to it. We've assessed the business case. It goes to planning now. It will be built. And coming up later, how refugees in Ireland are using their culinary skills to integrate into Irish society. Yeah, it's past time you learn from your mom and, you know, you teach your daughters. Yeah. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVNTV. First tonight, it's been another dramatic evening at 10 Downing Street. Boris Johnson is hanging on by a thread as British Prime Minister as two senior cabinet figures resign. Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Health Secretary Sajid Javid both quit within minutes of each other, with Sunak saying in his letter, the public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. Well, earlier today, the British Prime Minister appeared before his cabinet, complete with the now departed ministers. It was a stony-faced affair after days of scandal over his handling of allegations surrounding a Conservative MP. This evening, the British Prime Minister apologised for the handling around that. Yes, I think it was a mistake and I apologise for, uh, for it. I think in, in, in hindsight, it was uh, the wrong thing to do. Uh, I apologise to everybody who's been uh, badly affected by it. And I just want to make absolutely clear that there's no place in this government for uh, anybody who uh, is predatory or who uh, abuses their position of power. That's Boris Johnson talking about Chris Pincher. Well, journalist Enda Brady joins me now live with the latest. And Enda, I suppose this bombshell coming in the form of two high-profile resignations uh, and as resignations go, these are explosive. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and Sajid Javid, the Health Secretary. Um, tell us about how all this unravelled. So it's obviously coordinated, very, very well timed, and they came within six or seven minutes of each other. So two extremely senior Conservative government members. Uh, if you look at Sunak, this was a guy who's tipped to be the next Prime Minister. He is in number 11 Downing Street and is very, very well respected within the party. And I think he's realised that the game is up for Boris Johnson and it's time to pull the pin on him and get someone else in. Um, Sajid Javid, again, very respected within the party. He too has ambitions, health secretary. And if you look at their resignation letters, Claire, I mean, they're absolutely scathing. Sunak has said, he's used words like government should be conducted properly, competently and seriously. And he says, I believe these standards are worth fighting for 
and that is why I'm resigning. Um, numerous junior people have gone tonight as well. They're calling it the, the night of the blonde knives, but Boris Johnson, I mean, we're, we're into days left, really. I don't see how he can survive this, and already more letters are going in calling for a change in the rules for a vote of no confidence. Linda, we heard at the top of the programme from Boris Johnson with his um, apology over his handling of the controversy involving a former deputy whip, uh, Chris Pincher. What can you tell us about um, the allegations of inappropriate conduct and really what Boris Johnson said he didn't know about them when, in fact, he, he knew a lot more than he initially let on? So Pincher is an MP, a Conservative, from the town of Tamworth in the English Midlands. Last week he was at the Carlton Club, which is a Conservative drinking club basically in Westminster. Membership costs about €2,000 a year. How does that pair off, you know, with the cost of living crisis? And by his own admission, he got embarrassingly drunk. Um, what he didn't say in his statement the other night to the press was that he allegedly groped two young men in that club. Now, the Prime Minister was asked, and number 10 were asked, did Boris Johnson know uh, about the rumours and the allegations that had been swirling around Chris Pitcher for some time? Downing Street said the Prime Minister was not aware, and then it became glaringly obvious to everyone that Boris Johnson did, in fact, know of some of the previous allegations against Pincher, which he denies. So, again, it feeds into the whole narrative of Boris Johnson being incapable of telling the truth and coming clean. Um, it, it's just so bad for reputations in government. Uh, I think, you know, I, I'm here tonight in Oxfordshire. This is conservative heartlands. I'm in the Henley-on-Thames constituency. Uh, this is Boris Johnson heartlands, and people are heartily sick of him. And I think a lot of conservative MPs now will be looking at what happened in those two recent by-elections. The guy down in Devon, that majority of 24,000 vanished in one night to a 6,000 majority for the, the Liberal Democrats. And then up in Wakefield in Yorkshire, again, Conservative majority turned into a Labour win. I think people are running scared inside the Conservative Party. And if they don't do something very, very quickly about Boris Johnson, the, the big fear amongst Conservative MPs is that many of them come the next election will be losing their seats. So possibly will Boris Johnson do something before that? Like, could he jump before others, many more move, move to quit? How, how is this likely to play out over the next few hours and days? Look, knowing him, I've known him almost a quarter of a century, following him around various different events and, and elections and what have you, and when he was mayor of London doing countless interviews, He's not the resigning type. He just won't do it. It's just not in his makeup categorically. I just cannot see Boris Johnson resigning. What will have to happen, he will make this as difficult as possible for his critics, for all the rebels and people he sees as betrayers of him and the Brexit that he delivered for the British people. And just look how that's working out. What he will make them do is go to the 1922 committee, go to Graham Brady and say, we want to change the rules so that we can have a second confidence vote very, very quickly. And already letters are going in. If you take the social media, you'll see some Conservative MPs are calling for that to happen now. And I would wager that if there were another vote of confidence in the Prime Minister, I just can't see him winning it. But in terms of him resigning, it's not going to happen.
OK, Enda Brady, journalist, thank you for joining us tonight with the very latest um, from there. My panel are here with me. I'm joined by Fianna Fáil TD, James Lawless, Senator Marie Sherlock from the Labour Party, John Lee, executive editor of Daily Mail Ireland, and I'm joined by Skype tonight by journalist and author Frank MacDonald. Uh, before we get on to other matters, that of the Metrolink, the story from back home, uh, John, just to get your reaction to uh, these UK resignations, if this does mark the end and the departure of Boris Johnson. The big question is, this is the person who brought us Brexit, ripped up the protocol. Uh, where does it leave Anglo-Irish relations? Well, it's still a Brexiteer government and the Conservative Party traditionally and historically has never been great for um, fostering uh, relations with this country. We, 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 we've, we've had greater progress under Labour Prime Ministers, but uh, anyone would be better than Boris Johnson for the particular reason that he's been under such political pressure for the last six months that he has been taking more and more risks and chances with um, his relation, relationship with Ireland, particularly around the protocol, mm -hmm. to gain support in the Unionist Party and amongst the hardliners in the Conservative Party. And that hopefully will end. I, I, I frankly am not um, hugely appraised of the, of the stance of all the challengers on on uh, the protocol, but certainly things can only improve with this destabilised Prime Minister out of the job. OK, uh, well, back to uh, what's happening back home today and the idea of an underground rail line across our capital is something that has been talked about, in fairness, for decades. In fact, the government of the day were talking about it being built nearly two decades ago. The government have decided that that's a priority and must go ahead urgently. Uh, that will be finished by 2007. And that's the late Seamus Brennan speaking back in 2002. Uh, but today's government are once again saying it will be built. They're putting the recommendations to on board Planola. Here is Transport Minister Eamon Ryan. The government is committed to it. We've assessed the business case. It goes to planning now. It will be built. In my mind, one of the real benefits from this is you start developing housing. We have a lot of Nama lands up around north of Dublin Airport, which we can actually use. Dublin Airport itself, you know, it's, we're seeing it under real pressure at the moment. This will serve Dublin Airport and everyone who uses it. But with a 9.5 billion euro budget that may rise, is it worth it? My panel is here to discuss this all. Um, and to come to you again, John, on this matter, it seems like we've definitely been here on the programme talking about this before. Um, and it was last year when it was put on the long finger again. And we heard that date of the late uh, 20, or the early 2030s. Finally seems it is going uh, to planning now. But to say this is new, really, it's a project that's been brought down from the shelves, dusted off and put back up again on several occasions. Yeah, as a political journalist, I'd be inclined towards cynicism, but as a North County Dubliner, I would uh, be inclined towards optimism. Uh, I, I was able to break the, the, the fact, um, the story that showed that the budget had expanded significantly and the timeline had changed. Um, those same people I spoke to back in October, I spoke to today in government, and they were a lot more optimistic about the fact that this is getting started. Uh, back in October, they weren't sure if it would go ahead at all. Um, that the long fingering was really a, a, a sop or a softening up to get rid of the project altogether. So what changed? Um, I, I don't know. Um, they felt then that the government may not be behind it. I can only suspect maybe political pressure that um, 
the government is flagging in the in the area of building houses. That's not going to happen in the way that they, they have projected that it would. Their own projections have fallen from 33,000 a year to around 24,000 a year. And even that is a rather humble mm. projection. They need some wins. If one must look around the greater Dublin area, um, the beginning of, a pr pr of infrastructure projects could, get, before the 2025 election, could give the coalition a boost when it comes to the surge of Sinn Féin. Even I've, I've done an article before where I analysed the, the surges of Sinn Féin in the last general election and its proximity to perhaps where the metro line will go and where Marie, for instance, is based. Mary Lou MacDonald got around 15%, 16%, I think, in the general election. She would be very confident of a... So um, they want to be seen to be the ones who, who kick this off and finally get it and going. And if they can start turning okay. the sod in 20, 2024, 2025 and this, they, it will give them a boost going into the general election. Maybe a modest one, but certainly some form of boost. Yeah, it's very cynical, and it will go through isn't Dublin it, that Central. we're looking at it now when we heard there from uh, um, the minister back in the day talking about it back in 2002. Uh, to bring Frank MacDonald in on this... Um, Frank, we are an outlier uh, for a modern developed world capital in not having an underground system and no direct link to the country's main airport. Do we need this Metrolink? Well, I think that uh, it's a project that hardly stands on its, alone on its own right uh, because I think it would have to be extended into the southern suburbs, whether by replacing the existing Lewis Green Line to Sandyford and, and Brides Glen, or alternatively going off in the direction of, of Rathfarnham, for example. But, you know, the 9.5 billion estimate that's that's being talked about at the moment is, is really a ballpark figure because the truth is that nobody knows uh, how much it's going to cost in the end, uh, especially given the construction cost inflation that's in, that we're experiencing at the moment. Uh, and tunnels are, you know, notoriously expensive. Uh, and don't forget that Dublin Airport is already served by the port tunnel, which feeds into the M1 that leads to the airport. And, and, uh, and, and now the government is proposing to build another tunnel, uh, pretty well in parallel with that, uh, uh, to serve the uh, airport uh, with Metrolink. Um, and... So there, there's well, I think it's a, a lot I, I of big project not, plans, but nothing, nothing built as yet. Well, there, I think I think that that's the problem. That there's a there's a lack of class of, of a class. It's a classic example of the lack of kind of joined up thinking on transport in in Dublin, and it takes no account of, for example, the current strategic rail review that's going on, which is on an island wide basis, uh, and the talked about prospect of a high speed rail line uh, that would link. Belfast with Dublin and Cork. And if that's going to happen, it seems to me that the obvious thing to do would be to divert the Belfast line uh, through Dublin Airport uh, and uh, serving swords along the way, and then onward to Cork with, with stations in the city centre at, say, for example, O'Connell Street or St. Stephen's Green. Um, and that would not just cater for around a million residents from Northern Ireland who currently use uh, Dublin Airport annually, but it would also free up the existing coastal railway line for more frequent uh, commuter rail services. And, and to me, really, the most strategic project in Dublin uh, is not Metrolink, but rather Dart Underground, running from Houston Station to Spencer Dock, okay. you know, via Wood Quay, St. Stephen's Green and Western Row. And that is a very strategic project for the simple reason that 
it would, for example, it, the, the main thing it would do would be to, to link together the disparate commuter rail services that we have in Dublin, uh, DART and suburban rail lines and so on, in, and, and turn them into a network. And I simply okay. cannot understand why it's been downgraded in favour of, of the single line serving swords in the airport. All right, uh, let's bring our, our politicians in here. James Lawless, like, first off, there's the cost of this. Yeah. 9.5 billion euro. Let's just have a little listen to what Leo Varadkar had to say on Newstalk's uh, Pat Kenny show earlier on about that cost estimate. There is uh, an extreme case scenario uh, in the documents where it could cost up to 23 billion. Um, nobody thinks that's going to happen, by the way. 23 billion. Yeah, why, did, look, why did the Thornish that put that out there today? Is it to make 9.5 billion look like a bargain? Well, we're not going to build massive capital infrastructure spending projects uh, without spending uh, a few quid. Yeah, so, there's um, a few quid and then the there's minimum yeah, 9.5 billion. Do, do nothing, and if you, you know, put that figure out, arguably, I'm really proud before it goes to tender, it could be a lot higher. I'm, I'm really proud and excited that the government is committed to a really large capital project um, in the city, but also in the, in the surrounds. Um, I'm someone who got into politics through, I suppose, commuter activism. Um, I use the train to travel to the Dáil uh, most days of the week. Um, I drove up tonight, I'm, I'm in the show, obviously, um, yesterday I got the train. I, as Frank was saying, there is a connection through the Phoenix Park Tunnel. There's already actually one there. Uh, the Houston line joins to the uh, Northern line through the Phoenix Park Tunnel, which joins underground Phoenix Park. Uh, and I would often get off at Pier Street Station and walk around in the back gate of, of, of Leinster House. So as someone who, I suppose, who spends a lot of time on the train going to and fro, um, I really, really welcome this. Um, and we've seen the benefits of the Northern Line, and as John said, feeding into North County Dublin, but also, for example, for people coming in from further field, like Mike Cassisi and Kildare, uh, this connection through, through Basnevin, uh, yeah. through Tara Street. I'm just so, listening to what Frank had to say just about the lack of connectivity to yeah. date yeah. and whether we could focus on other projects like Dart yeah. Underground, like other yeah. projects so, without so, essentially... I mean, there will yeah. be objections so, uh, to a point of, sure. There's also of um, you know, yeah. ripping up the streets in order to yeah, get this you know done. What? You've got to do it. I mean... I, Look, you, you can pander forever to objectors or you can actually do things. And no, I, think I am just wondering about that. You say you've got to do it. There's clearly been yeah. no political will to do it to date. Um, I don't think there's been money to do it to date, actually. Um, I think that we have uh, 10 well, years of recovery. Well, it was a recovery. lot cheaper years ago under a Fianna Fáil government than it was never done. I wasn't elected representative then, never mind, part of government. Um, so I can't answer to what happened 20 years ago. Um, but what you, what you do have... During so that we party. Connectivity. Um, so there is connectivity in this. I completely agree with Frank, and I would also put the dart on the ground on the map here. Um, I listened to what Frank said about the Dublin to Belfast mm. rail line. They're not mutually exclusive. So in almost any city in the world, you'll have multiple modes. So, you, you know, you go into JFK, you go to New York and the States, um, you'll have heavy rail, you'll have light rail, you'll have trams, crisscrossing against each other. That's normal. So, you know, okay. what we're beginning to imagine here, maybe we're not used to this kind of big scale spending, but it's a really good thing. It's a really positive thing. Well, um, we're not and used to it all to coming it. together. It is literally like Hallelujah. that joke you make about God, waiting for the 46A and then three arguably yeah. come at once. Marie Sherlock, when you... When, um, well, not really when people have been waiting decades for it, James. Well, thank God Fianna Fáil has a government delivering for them now. Well, I think Fianna Gael obviously wants to Well, of course, look, it's a much harder... Yeah, I mean, I'm half joking, but... No, but the government is committed right. to... And in terms uh, of the cost... You know, I want to bring, I know, I want to bring Marie in at this moment. point, James. Um, do the costs justify the, the, the ends here and what, what we're likely to see um, if this Metrolink project is built um, beginning 2025? Well, I think it's interesting. Back in 2005, the cost was $3 billion then. So, you know, to put in context, if we'd actually pushed ahead with the plans. But look, I think, you know, in terms of where we're at now, I, I feel really 
really strongly that we need to push on with the Metrolink project. For the communities on the north side of Dublin, we see the population growth, 11% population growth in the Fingal area, uh, but also in terms of the congestion and the air quality uh, in, in, in the communities on the north side of Dublin, we need this to be built. Yes, there will be enormous disruption for, for a decade. 2034 is a long time away. Um, you know, I had concerns about Minister Ryan's comments last September when he called Metrolink an option. He's, he seems to have, you know, uh, I, I suppose, dramatically changed that now and we very much welcome that. We would have to question the motivation of the Thornish today putting that figure out. Like, ultimately, we need to, to hear now from government in terms of the funding that they're willing to be push behind this mm. over the next number of years. Yeah. Because I think, you know, while we have this announcement today, we've yet to really grasp how much money they're willing to put behind it. And for nearly two decades, as you've already highlighted, you know, communities on the north side of Dublin have been waiting for this project. Like, mm. And it's not just a question of this new funding. 250 million or 220 million has already been spent well, that's the point. on Metrolink. That's so we, we, there's no option. We yeah. have to, to, to proceed. And, and look, when it comes to our record on capital spending, I mean, we're not good at budgeting, are we, John? I mean, look at the, the children's hospital and what's happening there. We're really not good at keeping to a budget. So 9.5 billion, that's allowing apparently for inflationary pressures, but that's before this even goes to tender. So we don't know what way it's actually going to play out. Will they be able to do it without the cost overruns? But I think it's completely unrealistic to project cost costings into 2034, for instance, or like there is even mention in, in some of the press today that... The, of the timing for train runs in 2060. Now, the worth of money in 2060, uh, it can't be calculated now. Um, I, th I think um, Marie referred to a 3 billion costing back in 2005. I think it was even later, I think it was in 2011, still they were at 3 billion and escalated to, uh, to 9.5. Now, I don't think they can cost it. Um, it's a matter of getting the thing politically, the political experience would be to um, get it done. I mean, there have been so many options. There's one yeah. option I always was in favour of, and I've, I've been working on this as a journalist since the mid-90s. There's a thing called the Dart Spur, which could be done very quickly from Clon Griffin um, Station at a, at a very low cost, and that's gone out the window as well. So, so they've decided to down, throw all their eggs in this basket. Yeah. And I just actually want to bring Frank in on that, just on strategy here, when like there's all these different plans and different ideas, they haven't come to fruition. Is there a, a core issue with, 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 with planning um, big infrastructural projects and connectivity in our capital? Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, I was at the, the launch of, uh, of uh, the earlier plans when I was working as a journalist uh, and environment editor of the Irish Times. And really, honestly, you'd, you'd lose faith in politicians uh, uh, and, and, and in the system in general because of its failure to deliver on these, on these projects. Uh, and OK, yes, there was a huge financial crisis following the property crash in 2008. And essentially what Leo Varadkar decided then was that there were three big ticket projects in, for transport in Dublin. One was Dart Underground, the second one was Metro North, as it was then called, and the third one was Lewis Cross City. And because Lewis Cross City happened to be the cheapest at 368 million euro, as opposed to billions for the other two, um, Leo decided to go with Lewis Cross City and uh, and you know that's been a success insofar as it goes in transportation terms but also don't forget that it has littered the main streets of our capital city 
with 130 poles standing in the streets between St. Stephen's Green and Parnell Square. And actually, just That's to nothing to be proud of. And just to talk about the disruption, and I think Marie mentioned it earlier, that we are likely to see disruption for the next decade. We're also likely to see demolition, opposition yeah. to yeah. all of these yeah. things that could... Uh, certainly delay those plans so, and delay that date. Sure, so I remember I wasn't in politics at the time, but I remember when Lewis has been built up Harcourt Street and the traders are out on the street saying, don't let this uh, monstrosity come on top of us. How many of those traders are now thanking the lucky stars that Lewis goes past their front door? Um, just in terms of the costing, we, we talked about different figures. It's very hard to put uh, a long-term cost on a project of this size and scale this far out. But what I would say is... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Well, the figures say there's a two to one or three to one return in terms of the economic. And by the way, this is not just economic. This is community. This is opportunity. This is a you know mm-hmm. distributed population. There are many, many benefits to having good public transport. But if you do just look at the cost and the economics, two to one to three to one return, economic return for those routes, be that in, in retail, be that in employment opportunities, be it in study opportunities, these things pay All themselves right. back time and time again. And that's aside from the community benefits, the educational opportunities, uh, okay. the distributed population, the visiting family, all those kind of positives that come from a good public transport system. All right, before we go, um, I just want to get on to the issue of the, the, the back-to-school um, payment that um, government announced there. John, on this, um, do you think that government was bowing to pressure? Did they turn around to mute opposition calls for action on this? Because, of course, Sinn Féin had their announcement around it um, last week, um, as well as other groups um, like Vincent de Paul and Bernardo saying, you know, we need an improvement on what struggling families are getting paid by state. Well, the Daily Mail um, had been um, flagging that would, there would be an intervention in July. Um, I don't think there was ever not going to be. Um, and I don't think this is the last of it either. You know, the, the, the opposition can claim credit for any political pressure there, but I was briefed by government ministers back in June that they were going to intervene as best they could. I, I, I honestly don't see them being able to wait till the, the budget either to intervene further on fuel, for instance. Um, Marie, um, so would you agree with that, like all the talk from the opposition benches about something having to be done, this was in uh, the government plans anyway? 
Well, in fairness, we've heard, you know, no, I suppose repeatedly from government that they don't want to act on, until the autumn time. So I think it is welcome that there is, uh, I, I suppose, that, that announcement today. But I, I suppose the question we have to ask is to what extent is it really going to address those very serious costs of, of, of going to, back to school issues. Like we know from Bernard is the cost of secondary school books is on around 200 euros, the cost of primary school about 100 euros. So, you know, this will help, but like, as in it won't go far enough. And I know my colleague, Eona Reardon, is talking about free school books, because again, the state could use its purchasing capacity to be able to buy school books. And then, you know, we, we wouldn't end up with individual families having to fork out, you know, yeah. and we know that the school rental schemes work in some areas, but in many sure. areas do not. And the bigger, uh, the bigger uh, thing around free education uh, rather than voluntary contributions that parents are also asked to make at this time of year. Well, my thanks um, to John Lee and to Frank McDonald who joined us on, on Skype tonight. James and Marie will be uh, joining me after the break as we take a look at how refugees in Ireland are integrating in society with some using uh, their culinary skills. So stay with us. Welcome back. 100 million people are now forcibly displaced across the world. It's a shocking statistic exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, which has seen thousands of people arrive in Ireland, among other countries. But Ireland has seen immigration from many countries, people of different cultures trying to find their way in a new land. So how have they integrated? Well, I'm joined once again by James Lawless and Marie Sherlock, and also by the Head of Office for UNHCR Ireland, Enda O'Neill, and by Sarah Al-Bahani, a refugee who arrived in Ireland from Yemen. Um, and to come to you first, Enda, just on, I think, what the UNHCR has been highlighting around the, the plight of refugees around the world, we're hitting new global records in terms of the number of people who've been displaced from their home country because of war or persecution. Yes, that's right. Um, obviously, the, the war in Ukraine has been in the headlines since February, and um, that's uh, been a, a big part of the, the recent uh, rise. But uh, we're now at record highs. It's mm -hmm. been continuing to increase year on year. Wars are lasting longer. The opportunities for people to re return home uh, are often just not there. Um, so, you know, the, the situation is still that the majority of people, uh, about 72% of refugees, are in countries in uh, bordering conflict or, or where they've come from. Um, and these are often middle and low income uh, countries. Mm. And we are, as you say, seeing 100 million people. Um, I think at that figure was really quite startling by, by May of this year. That's the number who've been. Um, displaced. It certainly puts pressure um, on, on many countries as well and, and huge challenges for people who are fleeing those countries and trying to find shelter. Um, absolutely, but um, like I was saying, it's, it's often uh, poor countries that are, are bearing the, the most of that burden. Um, uh, countries like Ireland have more recently seen uh, uh, higher numbers of people coming. But, uh, you know, uh, through Irish aid and other development programmes, um, a lot of people are being helped either within the country where they um, were displaced mm -hmm. or in neighbouring countries. Um, Sarah, to bring you in here, you escaped Yemen in 2016. What sort of life did you escape there? I mean, um, as we all know, like hopefully that Yemen is, is kind of going through a lot of like horrific events. Um, I guess I'm fortunate enough 
to not have had the worst uh, part of it. I mean, my family was uh, kind of got us out as like you know as, as as quickly as they possibly could. I mean, it's gotten worse over the past what four or five years. It's gotten a lot worse, and to just see the way that my like I guess my cousins and my aunts and uncles are kind of what they're going through, you know. Uh, it's horrific. Like I have one of my cousins uh, was shot on his way to work for, you know, for no reason. He was just in the middle of something that was happening between two, I guess, gangs or whatever it was. And he was caught in the middle of that. I mean, he couldn't get help. I had another cousin who died of a simple like cold flu because they didn't have the resources to like, you know, just simple medicine, like cold medicine we have. They didn't have that. He wasn't able to get that. Um, it's it's just horrific. I mean, kids are getting desensitized to shootings and bombs. Mm. Uh, it's just very very sad. I mean, when you arrived in Ireland, Sarah, uh, first off, what did you what did you think? You know, coming to a new land, many miles from home, and how how did you how did you think you, you were welcomed here? Did you yeah. think you know we hear about the Irish kid Neil Fortia? Is that did you receive that that welcome? I mean, obviously coming to a new culture, I was, is, a, is a culture shock. But I mean, everybody that I met and made friends with here have been very, very welcoming, very helpful. Uh, I was, I was very nicely treated. You know, I was, I, would, I didn't feel intimidated or bullied or anything, which is great because obviously you're coming to a whole new set of people that you've never met in your life. You know, different culture, different everything. So to be well, like welcomed. Uh, it just felt really good, obviously. And yeah. uh, the UNHCR has been highlighting how cooking can actually uh, bring people together. And they've made a short film that shows refugees cook meals from their own background with Irish producers. And Sarah was part of this film. Uh, let's see a short clip of it now. This is Mokoskos, after it's left to rise for an hour or two. Uh, it's cut up, it's a, a rolled with a rolling pin and then cut up into like squares or triangles, whatever. And after that, it's just deep fried. They look delicious, really nice. It tastes good. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, th this documentary is airing in Galway as part of their film festival. And how did you get involved in that? And I suppose, how did it, it help you or introduce people to Yemeni culture? And I mean, where where you've come from and, and all those learnings. Yeah, I mean, obviously, every culture kind of has a lot of food in it. Um, we were kind of just asked and we took the opportunity to come and share. My mum loves cooking. It's one of her big passions. It reminds her a lot of home and growing up. She grew up also cooking with her own mother and learning from her own mother. So um, it's just a passion of hers. Um, and it kind of just brings the family closer. It also just helps, mm. you know, kind of talk stories, like tell stories of like what kind of food you eat when, you know, that there are certain types of uh, festivals or holidays that are kind of made for a specific food, like, you know, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, James? I mean, projects such as this bring people together, uh, the focus being on integration. But would you agree, as far as integration in this country is concerned, we've an awful long way to go? I think we've done pretty well. I mean, I think, I think as a society and as a nation, we are very welcoming and uh, very opening. I think it's a fantastic project. You know, we, we always talk about people breaking bread together and it's getting around the table. Uh, and it's such a fantastic way to integrate communities and, you know, when people travel, they always enjoy, you know, trying out the, the local foodstuffs. Uh, and when people come here to sort of showcase, you know, the rest of what, what you have in that regard, it's an easy kind of way to, to mm. break the ice and to break bread together. And, and it works. Um, and I think as a society, we, we've, we've been very much welcoming. You know, we've never had uh, any real difficulties. We've had some far-right, I suppose, extremists, but by and large, we're a very open and, and a welcoming society. Um, just in terms of the UNHCR, um, I know Andy mentioned the work that, that they do in Irish aid. Um, I had the opportunity to, I suppose, go the other way and see refugees in, in, in North Uganda, South Sudan, a couple of years ago. And at the time, that was the greatest displacement of people since World War II. Mm. Now, with Ukraine breaking, that's since been surpassed. And unfortunately, every couple of years, we have another crisis that's the greatest since. Um, but it's so humbling, it really was, to see people crossing the border, coming in, there were huge refugee camps there at the time. And I suppose you have two different approaches. You have one which is saying, sort of put people into tents and give them a bit of food and keep them alive, which is pretty, you know, difficult and, and not particularly um, humane mm. approach. The other approach is to say, actually, come on, be part of us, you know, join in, you know, be, be part of the whole culture and, and come on over, you're welcome. Um, Uganda, for all that, it's a, quite a poor country itself, did that really well. Uh, and I think actually, you know, we're doing our very best, you know, particularly with your, since Ukraine happened here in this country to do that. And I think that came in a fault. I think by and large, with a few exceptions, a few bad apples everywhere, by and large, Irish people are very tolerant, open, welcoming society, and along with that continue. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking about comments made by rural TDs, um, Danny Healy-Ray and Michael Collins, suggesting a cap on the number of refugees entering the country in reference to Ukraine. What did you think when you heard that commentary, Marie, um, and in their view, a reckless immigration policy? Well, I think we rightly, uh, I suppose, sent out the message that Ireland will take in as many Ukrainian refugees um, as, as those who want to come here. But I just want to say, Claire, I think it's important that while there's been a very obvious and necessary spotlight on Ukraine uh, since February, I think it's, 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 it's really fantastic that we are talking yeah, about Yemen tonight. Yeah. Um, because, you know, when you think of the civil war that's been going on there for so yeah. many years now, yeah. famine-like conditions, millions of babies and children dying. And, of course, Yemen is just one of a number of countries. We've got Syria, we've got Afghanistan. Like, it's just 11 months ago since, you know, uh, you know we, we saw the, the, the chaos in Afghanistan and the numbers mm. that we've taken in from Syria and Afghanistan in terms of the state pledges um, was way lower than, than expected. So in terms of the 40,000 uh, uh, Ukrainians that have come in here now, um, I think there are obvious challenges, of course, with regards to housing. We hear very worrying support mm. reports with regards to accommodation issues and moving quickly. But I think the, the key issue here is we, 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 we need to maintain the perspective that we need to welcome and, and, and ensure that there, you know, the people coming here in, in dire need are looked after as yeah. best as possible. And I want to ask you about that, Enda. We have an issue, huge problems with direct provision in this country and the way in which we have treated refugees yeah. to date and the services that are offered. And maybe Sarah will tell us a little bit more about when she arrived, what it was like for her. But, you know, would you agree that Ireland has a way to go in, in getting it right? Like we're talking about, you know, putting uh, Ukrainian refugees in, in hotels and elsewhere. Um, and also these sort of, you know, modular homes being planned, and but, yeah. but no real contingency plans in place. Yeah, well, I suppose we have to acknowledge that the, the numbers that arrived into Ireland today was completely, or this year is completely unforeseen, you know, in a short space of time. So um, 
initially there was a kind of emergency response and I think uh, by and large that has been quite effective. But I do think we need to plan for the medium term response. Obviously, um, we want to see positive examples um, like Sarah who get through a process, get through the other side um, and live their life independently and go on to, to avail of the opportunities that are yeah, has to Sarah, offer. how important is that? Because often we don't hear voices like yours. We don't hear the voice of the young girl who's come over from Yemen with her family to find a new life and escape um, that, the, those, that awful situation you were describing a little bit about. I mean, um, I guess there are so many people like me. There's so many kids in dire provision that I made friends with and they have a voice, but they just haven't been given the opportunity to. I thankfully have been, and that's why I use it to bring awareness on what it's like. I personally just talk about what it's like being a young person. You're in your you know, beginning stages of life, which, you know, make you who you are and to feel like it's been taken over by a process that you, you don't know how long it is. Uh, there are people that have been there for two years and there are people who have been in that, uh, in direct provision for eight, nine years, you know, to, to be stripped away from, of all those years, like to be stripped away from your kind of rights, you know, you're not able to mm. work. A lot of people, if you don't have your status, you're unable to go to college with Susie. Mm. And if you do go to college, you have to pay international student, um, you know, uh, the price of an inter international student, which is, uh, I'd say, very weird because you've been living here for five years. Why should I pay for international student kind of price? Uh, simply because you don't have a status. Um, I mean... And has yeah. that changed for you now, Sarah? Because I, I know mean, you're studying I, um, um, forensic science at yeah. the moment. I mean, I I was fortunate. I have I had I got my status before applying for college, so I was able to apply and get Susie, you know. But that's not the case for some of my friends who have had to make that money on their own. And especially when you don't work, when you can't work, it's it's impossible to get that sort of money. Okay. All right. Um, James, do you want a quick? Just response to what Sarah is saying. Yeah, there. no, absolutely. Look you know, at you. on so, this area, like you're, you're, yeah, you're so nodding I, I, away, but obviously, I, I, I think the point the there needs to be classification change. is. So Sarah obviously is now recognised as a refugee, you know, rightly so, and has access to university education, etc. Because then, good luck to you, and then you're doing so well. Um, but suppose people waiting for asylum are waiting too long. So there's that kind of um, dichotomy: people who come in who are applicants. They've got to cross the line to get status. Once they get status, things become possible and they begin to get all those supports. It's much more limited early on. Um, the programme for government does contain a commitment, obviously, to get rid of direct provision and, and completely, I suppose, do away and overhaul that system. Is there a date, COVID, timeline, Ukraine. in line for that? Um, well, it was due to happen over the, over the lifetime of the government. It was due to start in 2020. Um, it started. So it started. Well, COVID came along and then Ukraine came along. So right, the okay. system's been overwhelmed, I suppose, in the last so couple no. of months. Um, it's still very much in progress, but um, it's been... It's been and I suppose the other thing that factors into it is is the housing delivery. So um, people wouldn't there wouldn't be this kind of same competition for right. scarce resources. Okay, but I think the direct provision is, is probably yeah, a separate idea, issue. The idea is to get people into housing. So that's the whole that's part of it. Okay, and we will uh, we'll leave it there. But I'm sure we'll get back to it again. But my thanks to uh, Marie Sherlock, Enda O'Neill, and Sarah Aldabahani. James will be staying on as we look at the issue of thalidomide and how survivors are campaigning for settlements from the government.
back now. For decades, survivors of thalidomide have campaigned for settlements from successive governments. Now a decision in Scotland has brought this issue back into focus here. Survivors there have been told they'll get lifelong support from the government. James Lawless is still with me and I'm joined by Finola Cassidy from the Irish Thalidomide Association. Finola, you are a survivor. Yeah. You're among the people here who are campaigning and saying there needs to be more compensation and there needs to be that lifelong support. Many will be surprised to see that Ireland hasn't followed suit. We've already seen it in England, Wales and now Scotland. Yeah. Um, first of all, we welcome the, the news for the Scottish thalidomiders. And I want to mention that the Northern Ireland, 17 survivors, uh, their decision is delayed because of the Northern Ireland elections. It's funny how the ripple in the pond and politics affects so many different groups. But the Scottish announcement is following the UK announcement. And in England in total, there's about 441 survivors. There's 50 in Scotland. And so, you know, you're looking at a different regime of how they've compensated because distillers and Diageo were involved and the government are working through the Thalidomide Trust. But I suppose the biggest thing to say about the payment of, of the compensation is that it gives such reassurance to chronically disabled people who have aged ahead of time from the overuse and the misuse of limbs, and it's, it's medically and chronologically, you know, has been covered, that thalidomiders have aged mm. considerably more than we expected. So it's the security that this deal is giving them, and the fact that it's a built-in review with the security, so that every few years, it's actually every six years, but I think that will be shortened, everybody's going to check to see how's that going, how's it working for you, and that's... That's the reassurance. To give us a bit of background on that, thalidomide was a drug that was used to treat morning sickness. It was withdrawn internationally in 1961, but we didn't uh, withdraw it in this country at that point. Yeah, so thalidomide is the damaging ingredient in the drug, and it was sold in Ireland from 1959 to 60. Plus, we now know because it was never a proper and complete withdrawal. And so uh, what happened was, depending on the day a mother took it, it caused specific damage to limbs, to ears, to internal organs. It was very specific. And if you think that in Ireland in 1961 alone, there was one particular trade name called Softenon. There was 51,000 packages of that drug sold in 1961 alone. And now they were, at that time in the 70s, then they accepted 32 acknowledged survivors. So it just shows that worldwide, they consider with thalidomide, that 100,000 babies were affected in mm -hmm. utero or at birth. They didn't survive the pregnancy or the birth. Of the 10,000 that were born, a further 5,000 died in the first year of life from their chronic uh, disabilities. And then you went on to the, the 5,000 left and sadly, we're looking at about two and a half thousand worldwide. And as we said, the Irish Thalidomide Association represents about 40 survivors here in Ireland. And I was sorry when I was talking to the UK colleagues today to hear that they actually told me seven UK thalidomide survivors had died since January. So, you know, we are a very specific mm -hmm. group. And sadly, when we pass, yeah. it ends with us. You yeah, know? I'm just thinking about the compensation to, to, to date, James, and what Finola, the point mm, she's making mm. about lifelong support be, yeah. for survivors. There's 40 in this country, 40 survivors, Finola's yeah. among 40 people. Yeah. And yet the state has not apologised, as we've heard in other countries. And also, there was a settlement deal, I think, of 62,500 or something that was approved back in, 
you know, 2009, which, mm. which was deemed to be flawed um, by those campaigning. Yeah. So what's happening? And shouldn't there be more to help uh, survivors? Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, Fanola uh, is doing a very good job, I think, articulating the interests of, of herself and, and I suppose uh, people like her. Um, the state has provided some support, I think, since 1975, um, albeit not probably enough. Uh, and from what we hear from Fanula and her colleagues, they addressed, Fanula addressed the Fianna Parliamentary Party meeting a few months ago. Um, I suppose the issue is continuing to be raised. The, but it's not enough. So the, there have been some supports provided, but but not coming near perhaps what Scotland are now doing. Um, the minister, I know, is met with Fanula and her colleagues, met the group, uh, and there are proposals being put together in terms of legislation, which will be put before the doll. Mm. I, I don't believe it's ready just yet, but I think that is expected. I'm not going to say it's going to be the same scale as the Scotland scheme because I just simply don't know the detail of it just yet. Uh, but I know those proposals have been put together and I hope that would be good news for everybody okay. involved What are you when it hearing about that proposal, well, Fanola? you know, we, we have heard... Uh, through parliamentary answers and written and oral yeah. questions of, of uh, you know, things that were in train for heads of a bill. But I think there is now an acceptance among your colleagues and in fairness among the, the present Minister for Health. Mm. Everybody, I think, because we have really politically campaigned on this, mm. everybody accepts that this did not happen on their watch. You know, this is a legacy of the dark side of Ireland. I mean, I'm looking at cabinet minutes and notes yeah to cabinet ministers in the 70s, where they deem that it was, you know, inappropriate to send out the warning when the initial warning to remove the drug. Like, can you imagine in Ireland today, mm. if somebody chose, a group of men around a table chose yeah. to not issue withdrawal you, when there was even a hint? So are, there's, ju just to, to come back yeah, to James, I just yeah. have to say that while some of the, the, the ideas might be well-founded, there are too many pieces to this wheel. That, you know, the, yeah. there is the non-withdrawal by the state mm -hmm. and their culpability. Mm -hmm. It is the fact then when our parents okay. did accept a deal in 1974, it wasn't ruled in the courts. There are so many different issues pertaining to this. It and needs a wider, a wider involvement that, of a lot of people around still the table. Need to be addressed. That is it from us, from all the late team here. My thanks to the panel. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.